Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Easter is always an interesting time to preach because there's a, a, an assigned subject matter. It's not like, I mean, you, you don't have to preach on the resurrection, but I would highly recommend it. And uh, so it's, you know, this, this is my 21st year, 22nd year, uh, I'm not sure, uh, of preaching on Easter at Heartland. And uh, I, always, I always just want to get a fresh perspective on the re- resurrection because the resurrection touches everything. Uh, it's a theme that... All of, not, all, not only all of Christianity, but all of human history hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we want to we grasp that. We want a new perspective. We want a fresh revelation of what that means. And so uh, we're, we're going to look at it this morning. I want to look at the resurrection principle this morning. Because the resurrection is more than an event. It's a principle, and I would propose to you even a strategy by which God operates again and again and again and again and again. And if we understand that, we can cooperate with that and guard ourselves from disillusionment just before the resurrection breaks in. Because mind you, God will take you through seasons where you're going to come into a resurrection. But a resurrection demands death. The thing we long for most comes through the avenue of the thing we run from the most. The thing we want, want the least is the delivery system for the thing we want the most. Resurrection demands death. And so God operates in this way, this strategy, this pattern again and again and again. Uh, you know, we've talked about this a number of times over the last year. Uh, but David cried out to the Lord in Psalm 25. He said, show me your ways, O Lord. That is a good prayer for a believer to pray. You want to know God's ways because if you know God's ways, you can cooperate with him and you don't, you don't get... Uh, sideways as he's working in his ways and in, and in actuality you can get in the way and intercept him if you understand his ways so we need to understand the ways of the Lord God operates in patterns that God operates by principles there are templates known as his ways that God operates in again and again and again and if we can recognize those we can cooperate with them And uh, what the enemy wants to do is capitalize on your ignorance and get you frustrated with God. Ultimately, what he wants to do is cause you to walk away from God. And if he can't get you to do that, he wants to diminish your effectiveness by getting you sideways with God, getting you offended with the Lord in the midst of the resurrection process. Okay? So let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning. We thank you for the wonderful worship. We thank you for encountering us this morning. Jesus, we thank you that this isn't just a philosophy that we talk about. We're not just good moral people camping around a philosophical teacher that died long ago. But we are, in, we are inhabited by your spirit Lord, we thank you that you resurrected from the grave. You live seated on the right hand of the Father. And you rule and reign through us presently. We thank you for it. Now, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would provoke us. And Father, I pray especially for those 
who are discouraged, that are between the crucifixion and the resurrection, and they're feeling disillusioned and disappointed. I ask that you would minister to them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Genesis, the Lord warns Adam and Eve. He says, if you, do, do not, you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, of course, we know that was a stern warning that they, that they just ignored, and they ended up eating of the fruit, and it severed their relationship with God. In Romans 5, it says that death came, or, uh, diso- sin came through the disobedience of one man, and death through sin. So we know that this principle of death entered the earth through sin, through man's disobedience. That's what brought this thing into the earth. And, and uh, you know, there's, death is not merely the cessation of human life. I mean, it touches everything. Uh, you know, there's, there's death of dreams. There's, there's physical uh, maladies and all these things that were the result of that coming in through the disobedience of one man. Death came through sin. But I find it fascinating if you go to the New Testament, Jesus was teaching and he said this. He said, unless a kernel of grain falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. And he's referring to his coming crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And he's saying that the way that God's going to take what is in me as an individual, Jesus, and the way he's going to multiply it to the many was through his death that that kernel of grain had to fall into the ground and die. And so he's touching on this principle embedded into nature. But that principle that Jesus uses, uh, this analogy of a seed dying, we know that that principle existed before the fall. Because it says that God made seed-bearing plants. You know, he only made trees once. He only made flowers once. And after that, those trees and flowers would produce seeds that in turn would fall into the ground, die, break open, and multiply. And that's the way we would cause you know, many harvests and it would go on and on. So this principle of germination was embedded into creation. And Jesus refers to this principle of germination as an example of the death, burial, and resurrection that he would go through. My point is this, is that the power of the resurrection was a principle and a pattern already embedded into creation. So much so that the book of Revelation says that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the earth. This resurrection principle, this death, burial, and resurrection pattern was embedded in creation even before the fall. It was, it's part of the way that God operates. And so in actuality, when God warns Adam and Eve and says, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die, he presents it as a consequence. But for those with eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe, they recognize that in the consequence was actually the cure. That the punishment carried with it the answer for our sin. 
So when God says, if you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die, it was through death that he would remedy our situation. We know there were two trees in the garden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then there was the tree of life. And being a humanoids, where did they go? Did they go to the tree of life? No. They went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit, and they ate of it, and so God stepped in and he kept them from eating the tree of life. He barred them from it. Death was introduced into the world. And yes, it was a consequence. Yes, it was a form of discipline, but God is always redemptive in his discipline. Everything that God does is from a redemptive point. And so as long as we have breath in our lungs, there is still hope. And so God was being redemptive when he introduced death because God didn't want them to have access to the tree of life while they were in this devastated, broken state from sin. And so it wasn't that God was saying, now I'm ticked and now I'm going to keep the good stuff from you. It was, he was saying that I can't allow you to have access because then they would have lived eternally in that broken, devastated state. So what did he do? He introduced death. It's interesting that I was, I was reading some time back, uh, orthodox theology. I'm not talking orthodox in the sense that Orthodox as in good doctrine. I'm talking about Greek Orthodox and even the Russian Orthodox theology. You had the Catholic Church and then you had the Orthodox Church. And there, there's some things that they really track together on. And then out of, out of that came Protestantism. And we have a different way of looking at things as Protestants. We are Protestants. Now last week, Dean Briggs made a comment when he was teaching on communion. He said, some of us were, were too Protestant for our own good. And I got a kick out of that, and I couldn't agree more. I think there is some revelation that the Orthodox Church carries that we were so concerned about having, we, we were so concerned about these symbols becoming idols that we gave up the symbols, and they carry. They're, they're more than just uh, they're more than symbols. They're prophetic signs from heaven that when we step into them by faith, they actually release things to us. And communion is one such prophetic act. It's not just some symbolic thing where we have you know, the bread and the juice and it just represents the body of Christ. There is the presence of God that comes into it. Lest you think that's... Uh, some of you are looking at me like... Pastor, I'm more Protestant than you. Well, we'll get you there, okay? I had a Bible school professor, a tremendous man of God, by the name of Reuben Sequera. And I remember he was teaching on this very thing, that there's something more to the Lord's Supper than we as Protestants want to give credence to. And he told a story about how during the Jesus people movement, he was ministering in a coffee shop. There was a lot of these Jesus coffee shops. Some of you remember those. Matter of fact, I used to frequent one. I'm, I'm old enough to have, I was on the tail end of that thing when I got saved. There was a guy that ran a coffee shop in Ottumwa, Iowa. Now it was, it was in its final years, not only as a move, but as a building. I remember standing in his building, looking up and seeing the sky. The city was ready to condemn it, but I believe God kept that place open long enough for me to be encountered by this guy. 
And I remember him preaching to me, and I, st- I just started telling him, get away from me, I don't want to hear it, you know, leave me alone. I went down the street into a strip club, and they kicked me out because I was too young. So I came back, this guy I'm telling him, don't talk to me about Jesus, and what do I do? I go right back, because of his love for me. And this guy was ministering to me, and I was bawling, leave me alone, I'm the one that came in there, you know. It's like, he's, well, what do you want me to do, kid? He gave me a ride to some place I was staying, and uh, I'm indebted to that guy. He's still alive. He's, a, he's got real white hair now. Uh, a guy named Steve Stossel. I, okay, I digress. I'm sorry, I get into stories. Okay, so Ruben Sequera, he was in this coffee house, and uh, they, were, they were receiving communion, and there was this young hippie that came in. Most of them were hippies, and they were receiving communion. And while they were in the middle of it, he came up, and he said, hey, I'd like to ha- do that as well. And uh, they said, are you a, are you a believer? Do you, you know, do you follow Jesus? Yeah, man, you know, groovy, peace. Yeah, I, I, I love him. He's a great dude. And so they, they handed him the elements. And while they were taking just before they received it, he began to curse them out, and he threw it on the ground and stomped on it and ran out of the building. And they were all kind of shocked. Thought, wow, that was crazy. And they were finishing up their time with the Lord and praying and receiving communion and they began to hear an ambulance or sirens getting closer and closer and it pulled up right in front of the building and Dr. Sequera said they went outside and there was that young man he had dropped dead on the sidewalk communion is a serious thing it's not just it's not just symbolism there are uh, there's a prophetic reality that we enter into that we need to take it very soberly Orthodox Christianity carries a reverence for some of those things that we as Protestants sometimes minimize. We're so afraid of getting into idolatry that we reduce everything to trinkets. So we've got to, what I'm saying is we could learn some things from some Orthodox Christians. And so I, I've been reading through some Orthodox theology and and I don't agree with everything that, that, that I read of them. And I, but like I've told you, I don't agree with everything I've preached from this pulpit in the last 20 years. I've had to edit my own theology. But I came across an early church father in Orthodox tradition. And he believed that the reason that God reduced man from immortality to mortality and introduced death is because a, an immortal being could not repent. And so God had to introduce death so that we could repent. And in so doing, when he introduced death, it wasn't merely a consequence, it was a cure. It wasn't merely discipline, it was God's remedy for the situation we'd gotten ourselves into. Now if that's where, he, that's where he ended, that's where he stopped, we'd be in trouble. Death itself is not the cure. It's the resurrection from the dead that is the cure. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to be getting into this passage some more in the coming days. I want to build on some of the things we were looking at last week, but we wanted to take a pause on that uh, before we take off into a new series uh, by first looking at the resurrection. Let's look at verse 1. We're going to read a good portion of this passage. Uh, Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and they're... They were really into Grecian philosophy. They loved wisdom. They, they prided themselves in being knowledgeable. 
And uh, so Paul writes this, and, and I, when I came to you, he came as a church planner. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He said, I didn't just talk about it, I demonstrated. It wasn't just explanation, there was a demonstration. So he goes on, so why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Earlier on in this passage, he talked about, he said, we weren't going to strip the gospel of its power. You can actually preach a powerless gospel, which is a very sobering thing. That we can carry an accurate message, but we strip it of its power when we reduce it to just a philosophical discussion. That's why Paul says in this very book, the kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power. It's not a Sunday school discussion. It's to transform us, and it's supposed to show up in our everyday lives in miraculous ways. And if there's not miraculous demonstrations in your life, if your life is not an example of his resurrection power, then you are at best living below your blood-bought heritage. People should look at your life and say, there's no way that that man or that woman could be who they are today from where they used to be without the power of a living God in their life. So Paul goes on, he says, I didn't want your, power to, or your, your faith rather to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul was very, uh, he was very careful not to get pulled into wisdom. Verse 6, he says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Let's just pause there. In, in this passage, Paul begins to, he talks about worldly wisdom and the, uh, the power of God, the godly wisdom. And he says that we can gut the, the gospel of its power by reducing it to worldly wisdom. And so then he talks about the foolishness of preaching. Because the Jews would look for, uh, they, they were looking for power and the, the Greeks were looking for lofty wisdom. But God packaged his gospel in such a way that it could be called foolishness. And I believe one of the reasons for that is the way that we were lured into sin, one of the elements of sin is that the forbidden fruit was, it was, uh, it was uh, attempting to make one wise. They saw it, it was like good to make one wise. They were, they were drawn in by that sophistication. The word sophistication has that idea of an appearance of wisdom. There's this thing that we want to be among the wise, those that are smart. We don't want to look foolish. But Paul warns us in this very passage that the gospel, that is the foolishness of God, is also the power of God. The foolishness of preaching is the power of God. And so if you, if you refuse the foolishness of the gospel, you forfeit the power. You can, it's a package deal. And so this thing in us that says, I don't want to look foolish, so I'm not going to talk about 
A man who lived 2,000 years ago, died on a cross, and then bodily resurrected. I'm not going to share those things. I'll live it personally, but I'm not going to share it. If that's your stance, you will never touch the power of God. Because that is the power of God. And one of the reasons is that in order to save us from this allurement to want to appear wise, we have to embrace something that is humbling. That is going to be foolishness to those that do not believe. You put it this way, that this, this patch of ground right here, this is the gospel. And if standing here makes me look like a fool, and I, I'm not willing to stand here, I step off of it, then I also forfeit the power because that ground is the power of God. And that's the message that God backs up with his power. And God knows that we need to humble ourselves in order to walk in his truth and his power. And so he packages it in such a way. So he goes on to say, look at here in verse, uh, look at verse six. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. So Paul's saying, it's not that we're against wisdom. There is the wisdom of God. Jesus is made unto us the wisdom of God. It's, but it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And then, here it is, verse 7. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now there's different views, different scholars think that that's principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Others say no, it was the, the governmental rulers, the religious rulers that sent Jesus to the cross. I believe they're both right. Because those governmental rulers and those religious rulers were the lightning rods for this demonic uh, plan that the enemy thought he could take out the Son of God. But in actuality, it was the hidden wisdom of God that God was luring the enemy in. There's this wonderful verse in the book of Job. And uh, Job asks, can, uh, can Leviathan be caught with a hook? Can he be reeled in? Can he be pulled in with a hook and a line? Martin Luther, the great reformer, the founder of the Lutheran church, he commented on that verse and he said, yes. And he said, the cross is the hook and Jesus is the bait. And that's exactly what God did. In God's hidden wisdom, he lured the enemy in thinking that he could destroy Jesus. He thought, I have a principle now by which I can defeat God. I made a comment last week when uh, Dean and Mark were teaching. Uh, I think it was on the Saturday session. And I said this, that the enemy doesn't think he can overpower God. He doesn't think he can outpower God. He's, it, this is not a battle of power, heaven versus hell. But the enemy is foolish enough to think that he can outsmart God. He's arrogant enough that he thinks he can get the upper hand through his wisdom. The enemy lost his power. He was stripped of his power when he was stripped of his position and kicked out of heaven. But what he did take with him were the trade secrets of the spiritual realm. He understands how the spiritual realm works. And he leverages that against us. Now God wants us to understand those things, but we have to grow up into them. Because God doesn't want to give us wisdom that will destroy us. And so he wants to bring us to a level. That's why Peter says, add to your faith, 
virtue and the virtue knowledge. Because scripture also says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge will make you proud. And so God wants to add to our faith character that can handle greater understanding. And so the enemy thinks that he can outsmart God. And so what what Paul is telling us here is that there was a strategy in heaven. It's called the resurrection principle. That he lured the enemy in. When the enemy heard that, the soul that sinned shall surely die. If you eat of this fruit, you shall perish. When he heard that, he thought, I've got him. And so he lured Adam and Eve into sin, thinking that I will enforce this principle and I will strip humanity of their authority. And when Jesus became a man to pick up where the fallen Adam left off, and he was delivered into the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Roman government, he really did think he had God right where he wanted him. All this time, the Son of the Most High God had eluded him again and again and again. He longed to ascend to the place that Jesus already occupied. While Satan was saying, I will ascend, Jesus was saying, I will descend. I will condescend. I will become lower. I will become lesser. I will put on human flesh to win back humanity. And so when the enemy was luring Jesus into the the cross... The enemy thought he had the upper hand, but in actuality, it was his undoing. Because when the enemy swallowed the hook and swallowed the bait, for those of you who are fish, you like fishing. I used to fish a lot. I haven't fished in many years. Uh, Well, I I went fishing about four years ago with Steve Long and completely enjoyed it and got really bad sunburn. And then Mark and I went out for a day. We didn't get so much that day. We didn't get either, either day. I guess I'm a bad luck for fishing, so no one's going to invite me. But if you're a good fisherman, you know that what you've got to do, when you get a nibble, you've got to let them get it in their mouth a little, and then you've got to yank back on that line. You've got to set the hook. Because if you set the hook, you get it in their jaw then, or you get it in their, their, somewhere in their flesh. I know some of you ladies are like, oh, don't talk about it. You, you reel that thing in, but you've got to set the hook. And so when Jesus was crucified, the enemy thought he had the Lord. And he hell swallowed Jesus for three days. The hook was set. And on the third day, hell got indigestion. Whoa, I shouldn't have ate that. Because God was going to enact the resurrection principle. Now this resurrection principle is not just isolated to the Easter message that God uh, you know, gave his son, that Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was buried, spent three days in the belly of hell, and then was resurrected on the third day, grabbed the keys of hell, death, and the grave. That principle, uh, everything hinges on that. Matter of fact, so much so that Paul says, if Jesus was not resurrected, you are still in your sins. There were people in the New Testament church that believed there was no resurrection from the dead. They believed that Jesus saved us from our sin, but what that meant was that we would just, we, you know, we wouldn't be eternally punished. And so Paul told him, he said, listen, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus wasn't resurrected, and you're still in your sin. So it wasn't just Jesus' death on the cross, it was his resurrection that freed us. But that pattern, that principle is something that God uses again and again. 
And what Paul calls it here is the hidden wisdom of God. What God will do is he will lure the enemy, enemy into a scenario. But rather than Jesus being the bait, you are. <laughs> what God will do is he will use your life to lure the enemy into a battle. And it will often look like you're losing. If you look at John chapter 11, the the death of Lazarus. Jesus is with the disciples and they catch word. Your friend Lazarus is sick. Please come. And Jesus waits for a couple of days. And finally he says to his disciples, okay guys, it's time to go. We gotta go. Lazarus is sick. He's asleep. And they said, well Lord, if he's sick, then he, it's good he's asleep. And Jesus corrects him and says, no, you don't understand, he's died. Jesus didn't leave early enough precisely so that Lazarus would die. So when he arrives, upon his arrival, it says he found out he'd been in the grave three days. Or it was two days, I believe. He'd already been in the grave several days. The text explicitly says that Jesus found that out when he arrived. Let me just go on a little tangent here, just a little side note. There's people that believe that when Jesus operated in his earthly ministry, that he operated as God, that he knew everything that was going on, that he retained his, his uh, omniscience. He did retain his, his deity, no doubt. He is fully God, fully man. He would never emptied himself of his divine nature, but he did empty himself of his divine rights, according to Philippians chapter two. He didn't function as God, he functioned as man. Now there's been a lot of controversy about this whole discussion in recent days on the internet. And a lot of revival guys, like myself, uh, get accused of saying that, that Jesus, being, saying that Jesus was not God. That is not the case. Jesus was, he retained his divine nature, but he didn't function out of it. One of the reasons we know that is Jesus grew in wisdom and favor. And if he was walking in omniscience, he can't grow in wisdom. If he already knows everything, he can't be teachable. <laughs> he can't grow in wisdom. And so Jesus was our example. He emptied himself of his divine rights and functioned as a man under the anointing as an example unto us so that we can see what it's like for a man filled with the Spirit to release the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus arrives and he finds out Lazarus has been dead for a few days. And Mary and Martha, well, it's, it's Martha, when she hears that Jesus has arrived in town, Martha comes running and she falls at his feet crying and she said, Jesus, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And she said, I know, at the end of the age, you know, he'll be resurrected. So Martha, being this servant, this worker, this Christian worker, this faithful one that was always digging in and working, she attributed the supernatural break into heaven as some future date beyond the grave. She'd given up on her brother being resurrected. Mary, on the other hand, her heart was hurt at a deeper level. She was the one who it says would sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him teach. And Martha would be the one complaining, tell Mary to help me. Tell her, tell her to get up and help make sandwiches. But Mary was a worshiper and she would sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him teach. 
And now her heart was wounded. When she heard Jesus was coming, she, he had made it to town, she didn't move. And Martha came to her and said, Mary, the master's here and he's asking for you. And out of her mouth came the same thing. If you would have just been here, my brother would have lived. Martha had a theological discussion with Jesus. If you would have been here, I know you're the resurrection. I know that someday she's talking eschatology and eternity and all that stuff. Mary, she didn't want to talk theology. Her heart was hurting. So Jesus didn't engage in a conversation with her. He was ministering to the, her broken heart. And it was on the heels of that it says that the shortest verse in all of Scripture, Jesus wept. Now Jesus knows what he's about to do. I believe he had a word of knowledge that God was going to raise Lazarus from the dead because he told his disciples, listen, we came so God could be glorified. He knew what's going to happen. Not because he's walking in omniscience, but because he has a peek into omniscience through a word of knowledge that God gave him as a spirit-filled man. But yet he weeps. Why? Because he looked around at the brokenness that sin had produced. He looked at the heartache and, and the despair and the frustration that these people were living in. In the Greek, it, it, it says that he groaned deeply in his spirit. There was this frustrated groan because he knew that he was gonna resurrect Lazarus at, in a temporary way, that he would come back through the door of death only to pass back through it. And so Jesus groaned, and then he went to the grave, and he called him forth, and he resurrected him. But just like the disciples, when they were despairing between Friday and Sunday, between the crucifixion and the resurrection, and they, they were so devastated. Here's this man that they'd seen do so many miracles, and, and uh, they had bought in, body and soul. They knew he was the son of God. He's going to establish his kingdom. They're thinking he's going to overthrow Rome. We're at the right hand. We're going to have a high-level position in this new kingdom. It's all going to happen, and what happens? They watched him drugged to the cross and crucified. It was absolutely devastating. And this resurrection principle always has that dynamic as part of it. When we have a promise from God, often there's a battle for those promises and often those promises will die a death before they break through and they resurrect. And I know we don't want to hear this, but there are some promises we receive from God that we'll never see the good of until eternity. Hebrews 11 speaks of those who believed the promise even though they didn't receive it. But their receiving of the promise would only be in partnership with us so they could have a greater resurrection. They were denied the breakthrough. So there's this frustration in this death and resurrection principle. But if we understand the hidden wisdom of God, we can cooperate with him and guard our heart from the disillusionment that so often tries to encroach in our spirit. What the Bible calls the hidden wisdom of God is hidden from the enemy of God. 
but it's also often hidden from the servants of God. Often we don't understand what God is doing. Just like the disciples, even though Jesus had told them, I'm going to be like Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and then he was spit out. I'm going to be in the belly of the earth and then I'll, I'll rise again. They still didn't understand. And often when God's working in our life, we go through that, that time where we're veiled from what he's really doing. So it's, in, it's crucial that we understand that God operates by a principle called the hidden wisdom of God. And often we don't know what God's doing, but we need to learn to trust him in that promise. To guard our heart and to understand that God is always working at a higher plane. You know, the Lord is the best chess player in the universe. He's always playing at a very high level. He's moving, you know, many, many moves in advance in numerous dimensions. And God is always moving things around. And so we need to learn to trust him in that, in that resurrection principle because there's a hidden wisdom of God that God is always going to triumph. And just as Jesus was the bait at, in the Calvary scenario of the hidden wisdom of God, often you and I are the bait in the other scenarios. God will use your life to draw the enemy in, to overcome him. And so often we'll receive a promise and rather than things getting better, it gets worse. Anybody ever been there? Man, you hear a promise from God? My wife and I were talking the other day. There's a verse the Lord gave her about a given situation. I said, read that to me. Where's that at? And I've been asking her again, read that to me. I'm going to declare that over this situation. I'm looking for that situation to move. And since she got that verse, it's gotten worse, not better. When God tells Moses, you go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses shows up, tells the Israelites, hey, I'm gonna tell Pharaoh, God sent me, and I had an encounter with God, and God told me to tell him, let my people go. He goes and tells them, and what happens? Pharaoh says, I ain't letting you go. Matter of fact, now get your own straw to make bricks. Things got worse, and it often does before it gets better. But it's the resurrection principle that God is luring the enemy in. And if we don't understand his ways, often we can get disillusioned and, and, and offended during those times, just like Mary did. Mary, who was the worshiper, didn't even get up to come and greet him because her heart was broken. And so we need to understand that God is always working on a higher level than we are. And the resurrection is God's methodology to overturn the consequences in our life. God uses death to deliver us of the consequences of our sin. Yes, it was a consequence. Yes, it was discipline. You could even call it punishment. But God's discipline is always redemptive. And it was the only way that God could, God could save the sinner. He took us down to mortality from immortality. He took... Uh, he took us down to mortality so that he could resurrect us into immortality. And death now has become the last enemy to be conquered. It says that we will take on, we'll trade our, immortal, our mortal bodies for immortal bodies. 
will enter back into immortality. And the only way God was able to do that is to introduce death, burial, and resurrection. And that is a pattern he uses again and again. And some of you right now, you're in a death, burial, and resurrection scenario. But you're not yet seeing the resurrection part of it. And I want to encourage you this morning. Get into this passage. See that God has a hidden wisdom. It's hidden from the enemy. And God is using it to draw the enemy into a battle. To undo him. To strip him of his power. But if we're not careful, we get disillusioned because it's hidden from us too. And God wants to give us understanding. He wants to bring us into his hidden wisdom. And to show you that your, the, the thing you desire most comes to the thing you run from the most. That resurrection only comes through death. There is no resurrection without the dying of something. And death is the process by which God strips it of all of its impurities, all the things that we can't take, the things that are gonna keep us from a relationship with God. And if we'll allow him to take us through those processes, he'll take us higher and higher through a series of resurrection situations. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back up this morning. We wanna close with worship this morning. We wanna just worship Jesus for what he's done. And I want to encourage you to worship him over your hardest circumstance this morning. If there's a situation in your life, uh, when Jesus went to Lazarus's tomb, he said, okay, roll the stone away. And they said, what? In the King James Version, it stinketh. That's the King James Version. It stinketh. And some of you, your situation stinketh. Matter of fact, God didn't just let it die. He let it get to the point of decomposition. It stinketh. Anybody in a stinking situation? You are a prime candidate for the resurrection power of Jesus. You are a prime candidate for God to deliver on what he said. I'm telling you that the resurrection of Jesus is breaking in upon us. C.S. Lewis had this wonderful uh, analogy of the resurrection. He, in his great book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he called the fallen world always winter but never Christmas. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Always winter but never Christmas. Always cold but no presents. Always cold but no celebration. Always winter but never Christmas. And he talked about how the crocus, that, that flower that buds or blossoms so early and often will break up through the snow and begin to manifest. He said the crocus is a picture God embedded in creation of the resurrection. It's a sign that spring is coming. There may be more snow. There may be more weather. Hey, we live in Iowa. We could have another snowstorm now. You never know. But I'm, I know, I'm not prophesying. Whoa, man, I felt... I felt frustration in the room. It, uh, I'm telling you, even if we had another snowstorm Thursday, it will give way to the season. Spring is coming, summer's coming, harvest is coming. And the sign is that first crocus that comes through the ground. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? It means he's, he's the first fruits. The first fruits were given to God to sanctify the rest. He's the sign. He's the first one that breaks through the soil of this fallen world. He's, he's been resurrected. He's the first promise that broke through.
and we can look at his resurrection as encouragement. I'm telling you, the snow of your situation is going to give way to the spring thaw and the fruitfulness of your promises blossoming are on the horizon. So look in faith. Be strengthened this morning. Let's, let's close with a, a song this morning. You guys ready or do I need to keep talking? He said, keep talking. Let's stand. Lift your hands to the Lord. Father, we ask that you would deliver us from reducing the gospel to mere theological ideas that don't affect our life. Lord, we ask that it would, we'd have such a revelation of your resurrection principle, your resurrection pattern, the way you operate in our lives. Lord, that it would be such a, re- uh, such a revelation to us that it would change the way we act, change the way we live. And Lord, that our hearts would be strengthened. Lord, that such faith would emanate from our heart. The faith itself would begin to melt the snow of opposition. Lord, that our faith itself would begin to spring thaw around us. Lord, we lay claim to your promises. We press your crown rights. And we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.